every manager out there, for every business owner, you need to figure out your absolute key strength. What is it that you do that adds the most value? And you need to push that. You need to learn to lead with that. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mika Kraszowski, and welcome to episode 61 of That Remote Life Podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Mads Singers. Mads has more than 10 years of experience in Fortune 500 companies such as Xerox, IBM, and Coca-Cola, and more than seven years of experience coaching and consulting online entrepreneurs. Currently, he owns and operates three different companies managing over 100 people. And with all this experience in management, I wanted to have Mads on to talk about how to manage remote teams, and Mads came in swinging, for real. He came in strong. This may be one of the most educational episodes we've ever had on this podcast and on the topic of management, hiring, and operations of a location-independent company. If you currently manage a remote team or plan to hire remote workers in the future, this is a must-listen episode, and I think you guys are going to walk away with a ton of great info, just like I did. I was taking down notes the entire time and plan on implementing a lot of the tips Mads set in the businesses that I'm involved in. Before we jump into the episode, I want to give a quick shout out to Bob L. Saratoga on iTunes, who left a review and said, well done, five stars. Remote work is without question only going to grow in importance in the coming years. Whether it's completely location independent or a hybrid, this is the future of work. Some great ideas for productivity and effectiveness for me and my remote team in this podcast. Business leaders who can learn these lessons and implement them will be more likely to attract, lead, and motivate the best talent and gain a competitive edge. Thank you so much, Bob. I really appreciate the kind words, and I totally, totally agree with you on all of your comments. I really think that this is the future of work, and that's why I started this podcast. And if you are enjoying this podcast, head on over to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave an honest review. It is one of the best ways to support this podcast. I read all reviews, and every time I see a new review, it seriously makes my day. Also, if you want to contribute to the conversation, head over to Facebook and join That Remote Life Guild to meet tons of other people just like you who love online business and the location-independent lifestyle. As always, you guys, you can find the full show notes and all the resources we mentioned during this interview over at thatremotelife.com forward slash episode 61. That's episode all spelled out followed by the number 61. All right, you guys, without further ado, let's jump into this interview with Mads Singers. All right. Well, Mads, welcome to the show, man. Thank you uh, so much for taking the time to be here. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I'm super excited for this one. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, like we touched on before we started recording, you're in Vietnam right now. And I think I have to touch on with you know everything that's going on in the world right now. What is it like in Vietnam uh, currently with all this COVID stuff? Super. The restriction have just been lifted. I think they're probably one of the best countries handling it right now. Only about 280 people or something have had COVID. And right now there's only about 30 or 40 people who have not been declared 
healthy again. So very few people uh, have it right now. And basically, the, they've just lifted the restrictions generally. So Why do you think that they were able to handle this so well? Because I, I think they got hit by SARS a few years back, which mm. they probably didn't manage as well. Mm. And I think they learned some lesson. Like literally when you heard this thing happening in China, you know, all the countries were just sitting watching. And literally when you heard it happening, they closed the border to China, right? Yeah. Like already sort of mid-January, they started closing schools, right? And I mean, mid-January, that's four months ago. That's way before any other countries did anything, right? And basically they were very quick. As soon as any country literally had 20 citizens with COVID, they would not allow people into the country with that passport, right? So they were very, very strict on uh, restricting entry into the country. Wow, yeah. I think one of the issues with some of the Western countries is we hear these stories and those things like never happen, right? Like we hear like about all these crazy things and we're like, oh, it's over there. It's so far away. It's never going to come here. It never does, right? And so a lot of people were like blowing this off early on. I mean, myself included to be to be totally transparent. I was like, oh, you know what? Like, this kind of stuff happens every couple of years. It's probably going to be fine. And like never really read into the information. But countries who had experience were like, no, 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 this is different. And they took it seriously and they were able to like handle it very quickly. So um, that's amazing. Uh, and I'm glad that you are, you know, safe and sound and everything like that. But the reason why I wanted to have you on the show is not because of COVID. Uh, it's because you have a ton of experience managing teams and building teams and training teams. And especially now with so many people who are being forced to work remotely, right? A lot of companies have now been forced to, without ever having a plan on how to work remotely, they're now being forced to work remotely. So I'm super happy to have you on here to talk about that. And one of the things that I noticed about you when I was doing research was that you have actually quite a bit of like Fortune 500 experience before you got involved into the whole like location independent online scene. How did you get started working? I saw that you've worked with companies like Shell and Coca-Cola and a bunch of other huge companies. How did you get started in that? Yeah, so actually, like, my corporate career was in, in big companies like Xerox and IBM, right? And basically, I, I started working very young when I was only 18. My sort of background story is I initially, I was a IT guy, right? Like, I wanted mm-hmm. to do IT. I started an education in IT. Unfortunately, in Denmark, people get paid to study, which means when you go take an education, a lot of people don't take it very serious. And I've always, even when I was younger, taken my life fairly serious. So... I basically ended up leaving that education after a couple of years, looking for a job as soon as I turned 18, moved to a different country in Ireland and started working for Xerox, right? And very, very quickly, I was lucky enough to get an outstanding manager who just totally changed my whole world around in some way because uh, going from wanting to be an IT tech guy to wanting to be a, I want to do what she does kind of thing. And yeah, that blew, blew up everything. And fundamentally, I started, I was very confident that I would not want to go back to school and study and all that. And I literally started rigorous, rigorous self-development. I read a book a week for about 12 years. Wow. I invested a ton of my own money in going to like management seminars and so on, which I understand that most 18-year-olds don't do. But I got so passionate about it that I... I did a ton of stuff, right? I, I literally walk around the company, like we had multiple managers in the business. I literally walk around, get to know some of the managers and say, you know, uh, your shift finish after me. Is it okay I come and sit with you an hour after work and just see what you do, 
right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I invested a lot of time and effort into really learning management. My mentor was always, I don't want to be a manager. I want to be a good manager. So my focus wasn't the title or the salary or whatever. My focus was the impact that I was going to create, right? So if you don't mind me uh, interrupting here really quickly, because I think this is really interesting, you know, because we've all had managers at this point and some have been shitty managers and like, you know, some haven't. What did that manager specifically do? Like, what did he act like? What are some of the things that he did that you were like, wow, like, that's what I want to do? I think the number one thing during school, I've always been told as a kid, you know, you should love school because when you get out in the real world, life sucks. Right, right. right? All kids are told that. And reality was when I started, like, so I actually started in Xerox in one department. And like after a month and a half, I was moved somewhere else, right? And that was when I got this manager. Yeah, she was mind-blowingly good. Uh, what she did was she made people love their work, right? Like I actually had not just myself, but I had plenty of team colleagues who was actually excited to wake up and go to work in the morning, right? And I was like... I didn't know at the time, like I was 18, I didn't know that was a thing, mm-hmm. but I was so amazed by this. And and she was doing that by building great team spirit. She was doing it like great inter team uh, bonding and so on. She was doing it very much with uh, giving people ownership, giving people responsibility. You know, she was always asking people into, you know, what do you want to do? How do you want to contribute? Like, what, what can you bring to the table? Right. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a super, super inspiring way of managing that are just it just blew me away that sounds great and everybody you know I, I manage a team of you know 15 people on you know small days how do you balance that sort of management where you're constantly doing you know you're friendly you do all these things with like when you have to kind of like put the hammer down you know how do you how do you manage that my experience is that it's not really a good management for me is not necessarily about being friendly right uh, you, I mean, what actually one of my absolute favorite books in management is called First Break All the Rules. Um, and what I really love about that book is the fact that it basically goes through and says, you know, you can be a good manager, whatever your personality is. It's not that you have to have a certain personality to be a good manager. And this is actually one of the things that hold most people back because they look at these very yeah. famous people like Elon Musk and so on. And they're like, oh, well, if I need to be a business owner, you know, I will need to work 25 hours a day. I need to see my kid for a maximum of 30 minutes a day. I need to, you know, like make all these sacrifices. And the thing is you don't, right? Like for every manager out there, for every business owner, you need to figure out your absolute key strength. What is it that you do? that adds the most value and you need to push that. You need to learn to lead with that, right? Everyone has strengths and weaknesses. And what you need to do is you need to make the majority of your time about doing things that you're really good at and the stuff you're not so good at actually delegate and let that flow down the organization to other people, right? So how do you find that? Like, I, I think that sounds great. And I totally agree. That takes a lot of self-awareness, right? It's for you to sit down and say, I'm really good at this. And a lot of people don't know what their strengths and weaknesses are. How have you done that for yourself to find your strengths? And then how do you help others on your team, for example, find their strengths? So I swear to a framework called DISC, uh, which is a personality framework. That There's a lot of these tests out there, like uh, Myers breaks and all this kind of stuff, and and they they all somewhat valuable, right? The the challenge with them is 
that exactly as you say, most people don't know themselves well, which means they don't necessarily answer the questions right. Mm. And therefore, the results are often yumby bumpy. And very often, you if you do the test two times within a year, you'll often get different results. And the thing is, your natural personality never changes. Mm. If you do a behavioral test and get a different results, it's your self-perception that changes, not your personality and, and, and not your natural behavior. And natural behavior is simple things like the volume of your voice, your assertiveness, the amount of eye contact you like, the amount of comfort you have in terms of like half the world population, if they put their arms in the air, they feel uncomfortable, right? Half the world population don't. Like those natural behaviors, they, they do not change. And those behaviors also tells people what your strengths and weaknesses are, right? So I, I actually have a, a big management program where I go through that in detail, where I basically go through the whole DISC framework. Uh, and the most powerful thing about DISC and the reason why I love it to bits is the fact that you don't need people to take a test to tell them things about themselves. So you don't need to, people to take a test to identify their personality. All you need to do is... For example, look at emails they write. Look at, you know, meet them. If you meet them in person, like actually talk to them face to face. Generally, I have a rule that when someone sits down next to me in an airplane that I don't know, the time that they walk towards me and sit down is enough for me to tell them things about themselves they don't know. Based on like how they're walking, how they're looking at people. Yeah. So DISC, uh, just so that people know, listening, is this something that you developed? How do you spell it? And where can people find it if they're yeah. curious? It's an old framework, uh, D-I-S-C. Uh, it's an old behavioral framework from the 1940s or so. And similar to Myers-Briggs uh, in many ways, except it is significantly easier to use. And the fact, as I mentioned, that you can actually, that the, the primary focus of DISC is really looking at people's behaviors and using the behaviors to identify who they are, not asking them, who are you? Yeah. Right? You can do that as well. And there's a ton of DISC tests out there. And uh, unfortunately, there's so many big corporations that, uh, you know, they, they bring in these consultants, they do a bunch of tests with people and they're like, oh, this is who you are. But, but no one ever goes deep in this or no one I've ever met goes really deep in this, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, there, there's a bunch of reading material out there, but there's not a ton of sort of video material, right? Which is one of the key reasons why I developed uh, this as part of my management course, right? It's funny that you're bringing these tests up because I actually um, just took the Strengths Finder test. I paid like, I don't know what it was, like $50 or something to take it because I was curious. And you bring up a really good point that you can ask people these questions, but they might not actually know the answers to themselves. And one of the things that I found in that Strengths Finder is they had a question that was something like, are you a competitive person? You have to choose between one and five. Like, yes, this really like identifies with me or not. And I don't consider myself a competitive person. Like I you're not. don't like, yeah, like they said like, the, the, you know, you're not a competitive person, whatever. Like I was like, no, I don't really think I'm a competitive person. But then when I thought about it, if you challenge me, like if it's like something that's like very identifiable, like I will, I might not be a really good runner, but if you tell me like you need to like, you know, this person's challenging you to like beat you or something like that, I will like, I will die, you know, 
to like run and to like do that. And if it's these like small identifiable sprints, I'm super competitive, but it's not like that the way that I would normally consider competitiveness. And that really made me think. And I was like, that could have thrown off my entire test is like how many others, how many other questions were there like that, that I answered incorrectly. And, and, and the key thing is here, right? There's two aspects. There's how well do you know yourself? And the second problem is most people give it in interview situations, right? What do you mean? Uh, like if they're looking to hire staff, they will, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll give the staff a test, right? Or they'll, they'll give the people a test and say, oh, fill this in as part of the interview. In every situation, no matter what you tell people, they will answer what they think you want to hear. Mm, yeah. Right? They will answer. Like if... If if you see a job ad saying we need someone who's detail oriented, even if you don't feel detail oriented, <laughs> and there's a question saying are you detail oriented, you're like, hell yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you're not gonna be like, I know the job I'm applying for needs this, but that's not me. Yeah, that's funny. Exactly. Yeah. So that's a good segue into you know one of the things that people struggle with a lot is like hiring. We all know that we want to, you know, everybody talks about hire great people and your company will, you know, you don't need to think about anything else, but you don't really hear a lot of people talk about, okay, how do you actually hire great people? So what are some of the steps, you know, like as you said, like I said, you've worked with fortune 500 companies and this sort of thing. You now work with a lot of online businesses. And I think that they're very key differences there on how you hire based on something that's in person to something that's remote. So what would be your tips for people who want to hire a remote employee or even bring on somebody who's more of like a freelancer, but they want to make sure they're good fit for their team. How would somebody do that? Yeah. So the number one thing is large corporations aren't necessarily great at hiring. They just have much better systems. Right. Mm. Now, so uh, a little bit about the mindset around recruitment, right? So recruitment is sales. It is not fulfillment. What do you mean? What I mean with that is when people look at a job, they're like, oh, here's a role. I need to fill it. But fundamentally, you have to completely switch your mindset and you have to say, when I'm recruiting, I need to sell this job. If you want the best people, the best people aren't sitting around on random job sites looking for new jobs. And if your job ad look exactly the same as everyone else's job ad, like how should they know that you're the best company to work for? They won't. So mm-hmm. when you think recruitment, first thing is you need to think sales funnel. How do you get a lot of the people top of the funnel who have the initial qualifications for your job? Now, the way you do that is by selling the job and selling the company. Now, sometimes when I say this, people take it the wrong way. They're like, oh, I need to make it sound like an easy job. That's not what you do, right? <laughs> you need to take your values And you need to take your company culture and you need to merge that into the description. Let's say, and I'm not advocating this, but let's say you run a startup business where everyone works 16 hour days and, you know, there's even bets in the office so you can go and get a nap, right? Mm -hmm. If you want a culture like that, you have to tell people, right? You have to tell people. And the reason why is because some people would say, great, you know, I'm young. I don't have a family. I can't go do that. That sounds freaking amazing. And you'll find people saying, ooh, that's not me. I need to go home at 5 o'clock, pick up my kids, whatever. Mm-hmm. 
But the thing is, most people don't include that type of detail. They don't talk about the culture. They don't talk about, you know, the values in the business. But you need to do that. Because when you talk about those things, you're automatically having a lot of people say, that's not for me. And more importantly, you get a lot of people saying, whoa, that sounds just like me. And the biggest problem in interviews is when you have people showing up and they're like, oh, well, why do you want a job? Oh, well, you know, I need to make some money to eat. Pay the bills. Right. Like yeah. when people say that, you just say goodbye, go find another job. All right. But the mm-hmm. problem is when you're interviewing 10 people that all say that, what do you do? Right. And the reason why that generally happens is because you haven't sold the job clearly enough up front. Or alternatively, you haven't hit enough potential candidates to get enough qualified candidates, right? So top of funnel, lots of people. What you then need to do is you need to drill down. So just like we would do in the sales process with leads and so on, you need to look at how can we bring down this number of people and keep everything else being equal, the best people, right? And the way you do that is often by having some kind of test, getting people to to sort of do a two-minute video of why they would be a great fit for your business. People are like, oh, but that will eliminate people. And that's exactly the point. If people don't want the job bad enough to do some tests or do some things to see if they're qualified, they don't want it bad enough, they shouldn't be part of the process in the first place. If you look at a Mm -hmm. company like Google, they're so successful because they have the most difficult test. Like they do like seven interviews or something to get hired, right? And what happens is when you make the barrier to entry very high, Do you know what happens? No, what? People appreciate it so much more. Mm. One, when they get the job, they don't leave again because they're like, whoa, it was so difficult getting this job. If you were into a job interview with most entrepreneurs, it's kind of like a 15-minute chat and they're like, yeah, okay, you sound decent, you're hired. And people are like, Mm -hmm. oh, well, that was easy. Well, if I ever leave, I can just come back because it's like a small time chat and I'm hired, right? Right. So again, the more difficult you make it, one, you actually filter out people who are not that interested. And two, you really make sure that you really fall in and you get the right people, right? And and when you actually hire from a fund like that, you they're more likely to stick around for a much longer period of time. Yeah, I mean, I think I immediately when you're talking, I thought about an example I saw recently. Um, you're familiar with Basecamp, right? The project management software. So, I mean, the guys who run it, they are very well known in the space. Um, and they wrote a blog post about the fact that they're hiring for a position. And this blog post was like 3,000, 4,000 words or something about talking about exactly who they want. And I remember at the time I was like, this is how you hire because all of their fans are going to read that. And, you know, it's not an easy job, but it's a, they know it's a great company. They're already fans of their culture and their brand, and they're going to get exactly who they need applying. And that's kind of sounds like what you're saying is make sure that people are fans of your culture. And even if the job is difficult, I have a friend who works at SpaceX. Uh, you know when you're going to go work for Elon Musk that that's, a, you know, like you said, 16 an hour job, but people line up out the door to work there, right? So I totally agree with that. Um, and I love the way that you put that. But I want to ask you about a lot of people, especially now who run online businesses like we do, Uh, they're not necessarily hiring full-time staff, right? A lot of what we've talked about is like, we're going to sit down for an interview. Does this differ in any way if you're going to hire a contractor and bring them on to work for you? Or do you still kind of use the same process? So here's a great question. If you hire a contractor, 
would you potentially like them full time to be a full employee uh, at some point to become a full time employee? Mm. In most cases, the answer is yes. Again, the more privileged they feel by working for you, the more likely they will continue working for you. Right? One of the big challenges generally with hiring people who are not full time is the fact that they are likely to look for other work. Right. One of the fundamental challenges. And and I really always try as much as I can always to hire full time staff for that reason. Right. But sometimes as a business you just can't mm-hmm. afford it or you know, you have a very specialized role, like you need a graphic designer five hours a week. But you know, there there's cases where you don't need a full time person. So yeah, I, I generally follow the same process, right? So, like, when you're interviewing them, you still make it as, like, you know, kind of like you said, like, difficult. You describe yeah. the job to a large extent. Um, you make sure they're people who kind of, like, match your culture, yeah. um, that sort of thing. Culture is one of those buzzwords that you see it everywhere in Silicon Valley. Um, and people think that it's, like, beanbag chairs and other bullshit in your office. But how do you define culture and how do you build a culture, like a, like a real culture? culture within a company not like i said like yeah. beanbag chairs so kind of stuff. the way i always look at it most people think culture is taking a bunch of words and putting them on a page and you know putting them in a presentation and don't mm-hmm. talk about it anymore culture is really what you do so if you walk around and you know look at the people who are in your business what are they doing right what are they actually doing are they do they show up on time every day do they work long hours do they work short hours? Do they work remotely? Do they travel all around the world while they work? What what are they actually doing? That is your culture. Your culture is not what you want it to be. Your culture is what it is. And for me, that's always the starting point. Now, if there's things that you don't like about your culture, the way you address it is basically going to everyone in the business and say, you know, um, let, let's say, for example, you used to have a very relaxed policy of, you know, as long as you work eight hours, do it any time of the week. Or uh, as long as you work your 40 hours, just do it whenever. And you realize that, you know, that's not effective for your business because people can't communicate at the same time. So it causes a ton of delays and so on. Again, the way you address it is sit down and you basically make a very clear statement. You you talk with people. You could talk with everyone in the business and you say, guys, you know, we have been super, super flexible in the past. Unfortunately, at this point in time, it's hurting the business so much that we can't keep delivering with this culture, right? We have to change this. And I totally understand that this will not suit everyone, right? However, if we are to survive as a business, we must change this thing. And the way you do it is always go like lead by example, right? So if you're telling people, you know, everyone needs to work nine to five, you know, you need to do it, right? If you're telling everyone that, you know, I don't know, you need to work at least two hours every weekend, you need to do it, right? So it's leading by example. But but fundamentally, again, culture is the most important in the beginning, like the first three, four, five hires you make will basically define the culture of your business. And you need to be on top of it from day one because changing culture, I mean, something like this with freedom, right? Going and changing the working hours, it's going to blow up the company because some people physically can't do it, 
right? Some people have arranged their life around a job where that is a possibility. Now, again, if that is the only way for your business to survive, you need to do it anyway, and you potentially need to let go of some people, right? But it, the, the culture is generally created in the beginning when you have your core group of people. And the key thing to make sure is that you enforce the right behaviors that you want to see in the business from day one. Think of mm -hmm. it this way. It's easier to give people more freedom than giving them less freedom, right? So let's take this to like a, a real example, right? Um, I'm in the process right now because I, I think this will help people, you know, is to to kind of like conceptualize it in, in, a, in a real way. I'm in the process right now where for my business, this podcast and, and the other stuff that I do, I've brought on several people to help me out. They're not full-time, they're contractors, but I love everything they do and I would love to see them become full-time one day. How do I start at this point to take what you're talking about and actually make it into a culture? Do I sit down and do I like write out the things that I want to do? Are they things that like, like does the culture have to match me or can it be like different than myself? Like, like what are the next steps for me as somebody who's going from essentially a solopreneur at this point to actually bringing on people into the company and having to, to form a culture? So actually a lot of the time it ends up not being like the founder, right? Mm. And it's often a question in my experience that the founder consider their key strength as a natural and they don't think about them. So for example, if you have a founder that's always on time, they might not be so strict with their staff on being on time because they just expect it as a natural, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes there's certain things that just doesn't match the founder. Right. But what I recommend, like you already have some stuff. So what I would, what I'd sit down and do if I was in your situation is say, what are some of the things that you feel is the culture right now that you really like? So what are some of the behaviors or what are some of the things you see from a cultural standpoint that you really like with your team right now, even though it's small, right? Mm -hmm. And what are some of the things that you think would make a much better team if they were either changed or if they were really enforced? And the only mm -hmm. way to build culture is to live it, right? So, for example, uh, one example could be, you know, in our culture, we always deliver on expectation. Whenever we tell someone we deliver, we do it every time. If you go and make a commitment to one of your staff members and say, by Friday, I will have you a new desk, and you don't follow through, you're showing that you don't appreciate the culture you have. So if you have a culture like that, you must make sure you follow it to the T. That is how you build culture. If you say people always have to be on time every single day, but you come in four hours later than everyone else, that's not a great example. And over time, that can work. But in the beginning, with the first, as I said, three, four, five, six people, you must be the leader of that culture. You must instill the culture you want in the people, right? One thing mm. is around perfection or, or quality, right? A lot of time people are like, oh yeah, that's okay, whatever, and so on. If one of the cultures you want is a company that really does things amazingly, and, and well, not amazingly, at a super high quality, again, with the first staff, you want to sit down and actually review the work actually give them real feedback right 
again, this I'm not saying that's a great culture. I'm saying if you want that culture, that is what you have to do. Is there like a wrong culture? I guess what I'm trying to say is all of those things that you mentioned, I think if you ask any entrepreneur, they're going to be like, yes, I want that, right? Like uh, I want people to show up on time. I want them to deliver their work when we said to do it. So like if all of those things are part of like what everybody wants, do you see what I'm saying? Is like, are there things that like you shouldn't, that are good, but you shouldn't have because it's not your culture? Again, the, the key problem here is the culture match the leader's strength and ability. So pick out the one that are most important for you so that you can focus on really sticking to those and doing those well. If you're trying mm-hmm. to do 20 things really good, you will fail, right? Gotcha. So you need to pick out what are the most important ones for you, right? So for example, let's say that um, like communication and customer service is something that's really important, right? And that's something that comes easy to me. So what you would say is like, let's nail that down, make sure that every customer, client, you know, guest on a podcast, like they need to feel like the communication has been spot on and not focus so much on like, um, is this one day late or something like that? Because like the strength is in the communication, the customer service. That's a little bit of sort of overlay between values and culture here, right? Like values is kind of, values is more the, the actual objectives and so on, right? Whereas culture is more, what do we do internally, right? So the way I like to look at culture is there are a lot around individuals. So for example, let's say one colleague starts shouting at someone else. What's the expectation? What happens? What is the culture? So a lot of, in a lot of businesses, bad cultures are things like people not showing up on time. It's people talking behind others' backs. It's, it's, it's a lot of these personal things a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And I think they are often the ones that are most important to have a good culture around, right? Like work morale, I think personally is one of the things that I think is key, right? But but really the, the personal aspect, how people deal with each other, how people communicate, how people, like if I send you an email and say, Dude, you're an asshole. You X Y Z. What's gonna happen? Mm. Is the boss just gonna slide over and say, "Oh, well, he didn't mean it," and blah blah blah. Right. And if if he does, that means that culture is acceptable. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much for I diving deep on this. This wasn't something that I had down on paper, but we touched on it in. I think it's one of those things. Like everyone says, it's really important, but like like okay, it's important. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to improve it? Uh, So I appreciate you taking the time to um, kind of distill that. I saw something on your website to take a little bit of 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 a turn that I'm really curious about. And I saw it multiple places. So to me, what that says, that's something that you focus on that's really important. And that is you talk about the difference between coaching and managing. Can you talk a little bit about that and what is the difference and which one should you be doing as an owner and a manager in a company? Generally, you want to, like as as someone managing other people, you want to be doing management, right? Basically, the difference is that 
when you're coaching, you can coach people as a manager. You can coach people both at your level and people below you, above you. And I mean, you can, in principle, coach anyone, right? Like if you're good at music, you can coach me on, well, I'm uncoachable when it comes to music. I'm horrible. <laughs> but if you know something We're in the same boat there, so it's okay. <laughs> if you know something that I want to learn, I can ask you to coach me on it, right? Whereas management is is higher. It's, it's structured, right? And my, my fundamental pet peeve with management is that people don't get trained in it, which is one of the biggest issues in most businesses, right? That one of the key reasons why I do what I do with such passion is because I'm so passionate about people actually doing good management. So many businesses, you know, they grow a little bit, but they get stuck and they get like they, some business gets stuck when they're five staff, someone in 10 or 15 or some, some even get to 20, but they get stuck. And it's, it's generally always down to lack of good management in the business, either just the owner or the owner and the people below them. Because guess what? If you have an owner that doesn't have any management background or doesn't know much about management skills, very often when they promote other people into management positions, same thing, right? Mm. And it's, it's the thing that holds the majority of businesses back from growing. So it's not getting from zero to five people, like finding a product that you can sell. Like if you haven't found the right product to sell, you, you won't grow anyway, right? So great management mm-hmm. doesn't matter a lot. But as soon as you have a good product, as long as you have a, a good business model, management is so critical for growth. What, what annoys me the most is the fact that you know people would go and buy plenty of courses in a specialty. So if they run an e-commerce business, they'll go buy 50 courses about e-commerce but they won't actually learn about management. And it's probably where they get the most bang for buck in terms of value and in terms of ability to actually grow their business, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think fundamentally, when you're looking at businesses, when you're looking at growth, it's, it's taking that management skill set and really driving down to the organization, Right thing is, if you promote someone who haven't got management experience into a management position and just expect them to know how to manage, I mean, there'll be random cases where it will go half decently, but you need to train people. Like the same, if you if you want someone to run customer service who have never done customer service, very few people will just do it well. If you want to hire someone for SEO that have never done SEO, if you don't train them, they won't do well. Right, and and mm-hmm. yeah, this this is fundamentally important, right? Um, so when it comes down to the whole management, right, the, the the key thing about management is the number one thing to get right is the mindset. So the difference between being an individual contributor, and and that could also be a freelancer, where it's all about you, it's all about what you deliver. The second you start managing a team, it totally stops being about you. And it starts being what the team delivers. And this is where most business owners get stuck in a small business that can't grow. Because when they're small, they're used to it being all about them. They're used to the success coming from them doing whatever they their speciality do is really well. But the problem is they never move on from that. And the thing is, you're not going to build a $10 million business if you're the, one, the guy doing everything. And the problem in 
every owner is like, oh, yeah, but you know, no one else can do what I do. Bullshit. Like, the thing is, you learned it. Someone else can learn it. Someone else have that skill set. And the, the whole thing is, you have that skill set now, which means you can help facilitate coaching someone into doing that job. Right? But, mm-hmm. but this is where most founders, particularly people who move from freelance into trying to build an agency or so on, they all get stuck here. I work with so many clients, help them to get through that hump. And it, it, it's so, like, I've taken multiple people, you know, where they're literally working 60, 70, 80-hour weeks sometimes, like, trying to do everything. And what, what happens is when they hire staff, the staff become an extension of themselves. So they're like, oh, I give someone to something and it comes back up. I give something to someone and it comes back to me. Everything comes back to them. And basically what I generally do with my, most of my clients when when they've been through my, my coaching and so on, right, if, if they can't take a month off and the business keeps running, they still mm-hmm. have a problem, right? The thing is, if you cannot leave your business for a week, no cell phone, no emails, nothing. If you cannot do that without things exploding, you ain't got a business. A business is a separate unit. It's a separate organization that is self-sufficient and can run. The value you have, if, if you build a business that cannot run without you, you are the value. AKA is really a, a glorified full-time job, even if you have employees. Because the second you stop working, the business falls apart. It's really interesting that you bring that up because I've been reading a book. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's called um, Clockwork by Mike Mc... Uh, Yeah, as somebody with a long name, I should know how to pronounce that name, but I don't. And the thing that he talks about that just when I read it, I was like, holy crap, this is like one of those like one-liners that's really sticking with you is... He talks about the difference between delegating and like deciding. So essentially what he talks about, it sounds like what you're bringing up is that most people say to somebody who's working for them, hey, go do this. And then they come back to them and say, what do you think about this? Then there's this constant back and forth. Wow. What he's saying is that most people aren't taking the extra step of delegating the success and the completion of that thing instead of just, you know, doing X, Y, and Z, whatever was lined out. It, it, am I kind of like correct on that or? Yeah, and I, I, I explain this slightly different, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I love Mike. He, he read a bunch of good books and he's got a lot of things very well, mm-hmm. right? Um, the way I explain it is, and, and this is particularly relevant in sort of the online business world, right? Because all these people are like, oh yeah, what you do, you learn how to do something, you build an SOP and you hand it to someone. Mm-hmm. And that's not how you build a business. I can promise you the CEO of IBM is not sitting figuring out every process in IBM and handing it down the organization. I can promise you that, Mm -hmm. right? And if you want to build a business, that is not how you build a big business. Now, in the beginning, if you're a one-man band and you start hiring staff, in the beginning, you know the most, and yes, it makes sense for you to document the stuff you know and so on. However, the, the fundamental difference here is the difference between handing over tasks versus handing over responsibility. Mm. So let me, you mentioned customer service earlier. So let me let me take an example around customer service. So if you're an employee and I'm like, hey, Mitko, you know, we have this customer service thing. We get emails every day and here's a process how to handle them. Can you go do that? 
and you're like, well, you're my boss, I'll go do it, mm-hmm. right? Now, if I take a different approach, if I say, Mitko, I love the way you communicate with people, right? I really like the way you connect with them and show empathy and so on, right? I want you to be in charge of our customer service. You know, I'm busy growing this company and I really need people who can step up and lead. And I have full faith in you. Here's the processes of how I've done things in the past. I know you're a smart guy and I'm sure in a short time you will become better at this than I am. So I want you to be responsible for updating this process so that we always know how we're dealing with things, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the goals for our customer service department is, one, we answer all customers within 24 hours. And two, in the customer satisfaction surveys, we need at least 95% satisfaction. So you give them parameters to measure up to, kind of. Right. The problem with task is they, they give the close goal mm-hmm. they don't give the long term so yeah. typical way of handing over saying oh you know you have to handle at least 50 emails every day that's a bit like okay i'll open the email i'll say hello and press send job's done right because mm-hmm. i i sent 50 emails you know um but that's not the job the job is response time and quality mm-hmm. and that's the that's the case for majority of jobs. There's both a quantitative metric and a qualitative metric, right? But in the end of the day, for most things, the problem with handing over tasks is that you're telling them how many times to do the task or whatever, whereas really what you want to do is you want to focus on the output. If you have someone doing customer service, to continue with that example, you want them to focus on do the customer get the problem solved? If they answer it quickly, but they don't solve the problem, you're doing nothing. Actually, you're doing negative, right? Mm-hmm. If you're answering quickly, not solving the customer's problem, you're really working against the goal of the business, right? Right. And, and it's the same with a lot of roles, right? Like I, I see a lot of people doing, let's say, outreach. So they will hire someone and say, you know, every day send 100 messages on LinkedIn to all these people. I'm like, okay, let me open the phone book and start from A. Do you think that's going to get you the results you want? No. But I followed the process. I did mm-hmm. it every step of the way. You gave me the process. You gave me the task. If it's not working, it's your fault. But when you hand over responsibility, you tell people what is the output that they need to deliver. What is the output they need to deliver? Mm-hmm. So if I would hand you this LinkedIn thing, instead of saying, oh, you know, you need to send 100 mails, I would say that the way we're doing it right now is we're trying to send at least 100 mails. Here's the type of message we're sending. Our overarching goal is to get at least 10 phone calls a month out of this, 10 leads that we can talk to. And our goal for the people who close the leads is to close at least three of those 10 leads. Mm-hmm. Again, if you can find a process where you just send 20 mails and get 15 people come back to us, I would take that any day of the week. The difference between those two approaches of just handing over a process and actually handling over the ownership and the responsibility is night and day. 
in a customer service role, it's to it's different as an example between someone logging off at 5 p.m. or someone saying, oh, there's still two emails. You know, I'll just answer them before I leave. That's the difference. The difference between ownership and I'm doing whatever Bosman told me to do, mm-hmm. right? Most business owners come to me and say, oh, you know, we have all these processes. I keep giving them to people, but they never suggest improvement, even though I told them suggest improvements. But most of the time, it's because they don't know what the purpose of the freaking process is. Mm-hmm. They don't actually know. I mean, I deal with operations all the time and SOPs as well. And that's something that we try to focus on as well is like, hey, you know, I know that's one, two, three, four, five, six, but like, how do we improve it? And like, make it your own. And um, a couple of people that I've heard do this maybe in like an aggressive, like an overly aggressive way or actually our mutual friends over the Tropical MBA. Um, and also, I don't know if you're familiar with the folks over at Fizzle, but from both parties. I've had both of them here on the podcast. And they've said in terms of hiring and doing these things is that they will actually completely entrust almost like that whole process to them. So if they bring somebody over to do like like ads, for example, they will say, you do it however you want to do it. Here is the goal. And like you can come up and suggest the projects that we do as long as these are moving in the right direction of the goal, whatever that is. Now, that might be a really aggressive way of kind of like doing what you're explaining but i think it is interesting especially for fizzle for example they tend to hire and bring on to the team entrepreneurial personalities so they will tell them hey here's the goal and then you come up with the project and kind of like how we get to the goal even um so i think that that's really interesting now in wrapping up um i know we're kind of running short on time here and i want to be uh, respectful of your time i did notice that you also you know touching on sops you work uh, you have another company called aristo sourcing where you do sops and you help people uh, you help clients execute repeatable processes can you just talk a little bit about that and what that looks like it's not specifically sop so just to close up the last point right mm-hmm. so one key thing about sops is you always want to hand the responsibility of the sop to the person who's executing it because in most business, what ends up happening is the manager sits and is responsible for 400 SOPs, and no one's ever going to keep that up to date. So you mm-hmm. always want to hand the responsibility of an SOP to the individual executing that task. Now, you can get them to every time they update, just you know verify with the manager that that update's great, right? But you want the individual who's executing the process being responsible that is how you get people to improve sops so back to your other point right so at a risk of sourcing actually we don't particularly build sops but we basically do outsourcing right so we have about 130 staff and our specialty is helping people execute processes so you know a lot of people they come and like oh i need some staff and and I'm always like, so what do you need them to do? Oh, well, you know, some social media and some stuff. <laughs> it's a very ineffective way as a business owner to recruit staff, right? Because the problem is majority of your time will end up being taken up by you finding work for them to do. So instead of having this employee who gives you time back, you actually get an employee that you constantly have to feed time into. Mm-hmm. So I always suggest to people to always have some repeatable processes. Because again, when you hire staff, for me, at least the first couple of staff, you get the most value when you have some repeatable processes. And what I like having, particularly when when outsourcing, is having what I call forever tasks. 
So it's tasks that add value to the business, but aren't business critical. To an SEO business, that could be link building. To a, to a lot of businesses like lead generation, if you have a consistent process that can help you get leads, it's not necessarily critical that you run it all right now, but it's one of those tasks that if your employee have nothing else to do, that's their priority to do. Because that frees you up as an entrepreneur instead of trying to grab around. And I see so many people who are like, oh, yeah, I'm paying for 40 hours. I need to give this person stuff. Uh, yeah, here's a project. They will never look at the outcome of that project because they don't have the time. I'm like, you're getting someone to sit and do something that isn't valuable enough to actually take and do something with. That is not just waste of time. That is... <laughs> That's just stupid, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so having some repeatable processes that people can just keep doing as, as a call forever task, I found that really well for new people because often they struggle in the beginning to get the, uh, all, all the framework together and about exactly what people should do, right? And it gives them a little bit of breathing space to actually build effective processes rather than trying to rush it, right? Or not, not necessarily build effective processes, but basically you know, give them clear direction, right? And the last thing just about the processes is also that, I mean, the most exciting piece is when you start delegating things that you don't know how to do. So let's say you guys are doing email marketing and you need to do email marketing. If you go to one of your staff and say, dude, you're amazing at writing copy. I want to hand you the responsibility to figure out how we can do email marketing. Right. I want you to find the tools you think are great. Uh, I mean, I'm happy to talk to you about it if you want to talk through some things, but I want you to find a great tool. I want you to figure out like whatever you think is the best practices for us to use email marketing to get more clients. Right. Or again, you, you want to have the key goal there. But the second you start delegating things that you don't know how to do, that is when you start doing magic. Mm. Because the problem, you only have 24 hours a day and every time you have to learn something, the, the problem is business owners are so like, oh yeah, I can learn it best. But the thing is, you can hand out responsibility for five things that you don't know how to do to five different people who can go away and do it. And even if they do it 80, 90%, you get four or five times 80, 90% that you otherwise would never have had. And that's a lot better than one thing that you go and do 100%. And by the way, when they do the same thing over and over again over time, they will get better. Just like if you do the same thing, you get better. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I mean, I, I, I totally agree. It's it's one of those things that even I've found, um, you know, when, when the editing of this podcast, you know, I got to hand it over and it's something that I'm not very good at, but I was able to bring somebody on who is and it's like, life-changing right because like now not only do i have to do something that i'm terrible terribly crap at but somebody's doing a much better job of it uh, and so i totally agree it's definitely like magic bells ring uh, when it happens um mads i want to say thank you so much for coming by this has been amazing i know people who are listening are going to get tons and tons of value out of this i appreciate all the work that you're doing and putting this out there um, especially in a time now when you know people's management styles uh is getting really shocked uh, and test it and they may need to adapt and revisit a lot of this so so thank you for putting out all this information uh let people know where can they find you um you know you mentioned 
a couple of different trainings that you do. Tell people about that, where they can check them out. And then also where can they uh, kind of, uh, I know that you have a podcast uh, and where can people kind of check out more about that? So the best place is mattsingers.com. So M-A-D-S-S-I-N-G-E-R-S.com. And when you go into the page, the first thing you will see is actually a free webinar uh, around management. So you can actually sign up and you can get started learning a bit more. Uh, I also have a multiple different courses. So I have management course, productivity course, a specific course on e-commerce for finance and so on. So plenty of courses. And yeah, I, I, I love helping people. I love this ton of free material. So I have a management podcast there as well. Uh, I do a ton of podcasts, which also if you follow me on Facebook or LinkedIn and so on, you'll also see uh, all the podcasts that I'm on. And yeah. Yeah, and we're going to have um, links to all of that in the show notes for anybody who's listening and, and didn't get to write that down. But Mads, thank you so much for coming by again. Uh, this has been amazing. And uh, please take care and stay safe. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Thank you very much. Pleasure.